Hello and welcome to Mayo Clinic Talks, the opioid edition. I'm Tracy McRae and with me today is Dr. David Patchett from Mayo Clinic in Arizona. Hello, Dr. Patchett. Hello, how are you? Good. Dr. Patchett is a family medicine physician, board certified in family medicine, OMT, and integrative medicine. And we'll be talking today about opioid therapy from the primary care physician perspective. So, Dr. Patchett, what are some of the best practices identified for uh, responsibly prescribing opioids, specifically from a primary care physician? I mean, I think the first thing to consider is whether opioids are indicated in the particular individual and for that situation. So we know that opioids have a defined role in both acute pain and post-surgical pain. Uh, They're less well supported in the chronic setting, however. Uh, Patients should have tried uh, acetaminophen or NSAIDs first. Uh, Also, non-pharmacologic options uh, should be considered uh, prior to opiates, and those uh, would be such things as manual medicine, physical therapy, acupuncture, meditation, biofeedback, etc. Uh, for patients in the chronic pain setting. I think the last thing is, is the consideration of depression and anxiety are common in chronic pain and need to be addressed as well. So, so if an opiate is determined appropriate, uh, the state prescription drug monitoring program uh, should be checked prior to starting an opiate and at least quarterly in the chronic setting. If an individual is on chronic opioid therapy, a controlled substance agreement form should be completed and at least once yearly, uh, a random urine drug screen should be uh, done. More frequently in individuals that uh, you worry about the risks of uh, opiate either diversion or abuse. Lastly, opiate dose should ideally stay below 50 milligrams of morphine equivalents a day and definitely below 90 milligrams. Uh, any individual on high-dose opioid therapy should be given a uh, prescription for Narcan, and they should be taught how to use the Narcan uh, as well as their family members. How do you weigh the potential benefits against the potential risks initiating opioid therapy for a patient? I mean, I think the, the key here is we know that opioids have a defined role in both acute and post-surgical pain. The limited data to support the place of opioids in chronic pain because they really have been studied, particularly over a year, uh, when they've been given for over, over a year. Uh, and providers need to take a personalized approach for patients with pain and carefully weigh the risks and benefits uh, in that individual. If there is an alternative, safer option uh, available, then that should be tried first. Um, there are also screening tools, which we will discuss later as well, uh, to uh, screen patients for potential for opiate addiction and abuse. The key is ongoing assessment of individuals and uh, taking the individual patient. Are there any uh, resources that a family practitioner can use uh, either in office to help assess a patient's risk at developing an opioid use disorder or in other circumstances too, I suppose? There There are several resources out there. The one that I like the best is Opioid Risk Tool. Um, there are a couple other longer ones called, uh, such as the Dyer score and the SOAP-R score. Uh, the nice thing about the uh, opioid risk tool is it's relatively short um, and easy to do in the primary care setting. Which one of those do you use the most out of those ones you mentioned? So I primarily use the opioid risk tool, and that's what, that's what our practices in Arizona use uh, in the primary care setting. Because of its ease of use, we use that score. Okay. Are there certain drugs or, or substances that are contraindicated with opioid therapy? There are, um, particularly you know, the risks of certain medications 
when you combine them with opiates, have higher risks uh, of side effects as well as um, abuse. And those ones are benzodiazepines as, as well as other respiratory depressants. Those triple the, the risk of respiratory depression and mortality rates for, uh, from opiates when those are combined uh, with opiates. Um, alcohol consumption can be dangerous as well. Diuretics can reduce the efficacy of opiates. Uh, certain drugs uh, in their interaction with the cytochrome uh, P450 system can either inhibit or induce uh, medications altering the opioid levels. And then concomitant use with other anticholinergic medications, such as those used for people with uh, bladder incontinence, uh, may induce uh, severe constipation, ileus, urinary retention. And then other, you should monitor with other CNS depressants. So when people move from opioids to heroin, and if they overdose on heroin, what is it that they're usually, um, is, it, is it that there is some sort of combination that is causing them to overdose, or what is causing that heroin overdose then? Typically, it's the amount of heroin they're giving. And so often what they get is too high of an amount. And so it depends on what the potency of the heroin is. And in today's market, really the risk is the fentanyl because it is such a higher rate of respiratory depression because it's so much more potent than even heroin is. And they, they take this and they're not ready for the, the potency of the, of the fentanyl and they get severe respiratory depression and that can lead to overdose and death. That's got to be something, uh, uh, as we started off talking about the family members, um, that the families don't have any idea how to control. I mean, it's one thing if they're on an opioid that you know they're on that prescription, but when they start veering off into the other areas of the illegal narcotics, that makes it even harder. Is that right? It, it does make it harder, and I think that's why we are having laws that allow people to get Narcan. And to give those to family members or friends that are going to be with those individuals that are still struggling with opiate addiction. Um, and then I think just getting people help is, is key and trying to help them get into settings where they can get help and, uh, with their opiate addiction. Um, let's talk about possibly changing the prescription as an option. Uh, maybe oxycodone or methadone. Are either of those good choices for prescribers or maybe something else? No, really try to limit the use of oxycodone. Uh, because of its um, higher risk um, of um, abuse, um, it does pro promote addiction. So I try to stay away from that one, if at all possible. Methadone is a very tricky drug and really should only be used by someone who has extensive training and experience with methadone. And we, at least in our setting, the primary care setting, we don't um, use methadone because of those uh, issues. When you train a family member or um, educate them on the Narcan, that's got to be, uh, there has to be more, though, than just saying if the, you see them overdosing, give them this medication. What are the things do you tell family members to support them while they're supporting this person who is addicted or going through that opioid dependence? Well, I mean, I think what I typically do is to try to, you know, sit down and have a discussion, hopefully with the individual that's struggling with the addiction as well as the family members, and, you know, talk about the disease of addiction. Um, I typically recommend they see an addiction specialist, which I'm not. And, um, and often an inpatient setting can be very helpful uh, for those with addiction. I also do recommend they look for somebody that uses a particular protocol called the NADA protocol, which was an auricular acupuncture protocol, 
that can be done in the inpatient setting for those with um, addiction. That needs to be done at a formal training center that has those that are trained with the NADA protocol and help those with addiction. And that does seem to improve outcomes in those individuals as well. Can you tell me a little bit more about that NADA protocol? Yeah, you know, I haven't been formally trained, but I can tell you it's a, it's a five acupuncture point uh, that has improved the ability of individuals to stay off of addictive substances, including alcohol and tobacco. Um, and there's been several trials that have shown that they, they improve their length of time off of uh, the drugs. And so when it's combined with the typical therapy in the inpatient detoxification center, um, it is beneficial. Wow. That's impressive. I've never heard of that before. Do you, yeah. when you mention this with a patient that you are concerned um, that there might be some dependency that is developing, are most patients receptive of that information or do they disagree? I think it depends on where they're at in the behavior change cycle. So some of them are just not ready to make a change. Um, they are still in the throes of addiction and not ready to make a change. So it depends on where they're at in the behavior change cycle, how willing they are to accept um, and to move forward with trying to get treatment. Hmm. Well, that is our time for Mayo Clinic Talks today, the opioid edition. Once again, thanks to Dr. David Patchett from Mayo Clinic in Arizona for being my guest. Thanks, Dr. Patchett. Thank you. Remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and share with a friend. Healthcare professionals looking to claim CME credit for this podcast can go to ce.mayo.edu slash opioid PC and register. That's ce.mayo.edu slash opioid PC.